0: Our sermon text for this morning is from Revelation 1, verses 1 through 8. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Let us pray. Almighty Father, we thank you for the gifts of your word and for the word made flesh. Open our hearts and our minds as we turn to them and send us your spirit that we may understand your teachings rightly and truly and to apply what we learn in our lives. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. So when I was suddenly asked to preach yesterday evening and told that the sermon text was supposed to be the introduction to the revelation of Jesus Christ, I have to admit, I inwardly sighed. There are 66 books in the Bible, and out of all of them, in my opinion, uh, one of the most difficult ones to preach from is probably this one. I mean, of course, I know that this book, like all the others, uh, are inspired by God, okay? And of course, I know that it should be preached through and thoroughly in great depth because all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And for what book could this exhortation be truer than for this one, than for this one, the capstone of the whole Bible. It even says right there in verse three, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Revelation is actually the only book in all of scripture which expressly sets such a thing about itself that we are blessed, we are blessed for reading it, hearing it, and retaining it. I mean, so we should, engage this magnificent work. And yet still, you know, after uh, the kids were put to bed and I finally sat down to turn on my computer to compose this sermon, before I even wrote a single word, I sighed again and then got up to eat some potato chips and pet the cat <laughs> to procrastinate some more. And why, why, why did I sigh? Why, why did I feel this way? Well, it's because, I mean, revelation is, is a tough... It's a tough book, and I, I know, moreover, that it's, it's a little bit controversial in some ways. It's For too many Christians, in fact, Revelation is sometimes one of two things. Either it is a source of unproductive speculation, or it is a source of hopeless confusion. And, and by unproductive speculation, I'm referring to the misguided tendency of some to obsess over trying to to connect specific verses or specific passages in Revelation to specific current events, like back in the day when we had newspapers, like reading newspaper in one hand and the Bible in the other, and trying to see where does this match up. It's what I think of as the Nostradamus or the crystal ball approach to interpretation. Folks would say something like, oh, locusts, they're really attack helicopters or microchips are the mark of the beast, which we actually came up in Sunday School this morning. (laughs) Therefore, because of these things, the return of Christ has got to be imminent, right around the corner. But the truth is they're, they're probably wrong. For this is by no means a contemporary obsession because folks have been doing this for thousands of years and they've been proven utterly wrong for the same amount of time. Emperor Charles V is the beast. Pope Alexander VI is the Antichrist. Therefore, the return of Christ is just around the corner. Long before the fictional Nikolai Carpathia of the left behind novels, which some of you may remember from back in the day if you grew up in the 90s, there was the real life Benito Mussolini who, rather than ushering in the tribulation as the Antichrist, wound up hanging bloody and dead from the roof of a gas station in Italy. Moreover, this obsession with predicting the future is in contradiction to the plain words of Christ, who himself said of his return in Matthew 24, concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, not even the Son, but the Father only. And he makes it clear over and over again that while he is indeed definitely coming again, And while we must be ready for his return, and prepare for his return, and live as though he was going to return any moment, he is coming at an hour we will not expect. And when I said that revelation is a source of hopeless confusion for many, what I mean is that a lot of folks don't even pretend to have an understanding of this book. They'll readily admit that revelation is incomprehensible to them. And the sad thing is, they love all of other John's four other books in the Bible, you know, whose, whose soul is not fed heartily by the word of God through John 1, that description of in the beginning was the word, and so forth. From the description of that uh, in the first chapter of the gospel, according to him, to his exposition of God's love, of God being love, God being light in his letters. But when it comes to Revelation, which is almost like John 4, if you want to label it that way, nah, I don't get it. I don't get it at all. And if you don't get something, you you can't derive any hope from it. And so that's what I mean by hopeless confusion. And even worse than that, I've actually heard some folks express fear and dread over portions of Revelation, as in more or less, I really hope I'm not alive to experience some of the horrible things that are described in this book. But revelation is so much more than a cloudy or confusing crystal ball. And we can see this in the first chapter here, which introduces the rest of this book. The very first sentence begins its description as the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. And by must soon take place, the plain meaning of this is that the primary purpose of this revelation, while prophetic, concerns events that will be relevant to the people reading this book. Of course, this means being relevant to the people of the seven churches of Asia Minor to whom John wrote this in his time, but it also means being relevant for any servant of God in any time or place. Now, of course, there are portions of the book that will describe events that are in the future. The return of our Lord is in the future. The final judgment is not yet here. The new heavens and the new earth represent a world to come which we as Christians long to inherit. But those occasions are described relatively sparingly in Revelation, and while the narrative ultimately leads to those events, they do not dominate the story. It should be obvious to us now as well that these were not the events necessarily that John entirely had in mind when he wrote, must soon take place since nearly 2,000 years have passed since he was given this revelation. And for all we know, for all we know, it might be another 2,000 years before the Lord returns. Missionaries might be traveling via interstellar spacecraft to distant off-world colonies to spread the gospel before Christ comes again. Maybe. We don't know. It could be tomorrow. It could be 2,000 years from now. But the revelation of Jesus Christ will still be given to us via John to show us the things that, in some sense, must soon take place. So logically, what revelation is about as a whole, even in chapters 4 through 22, can't be just about the relatively short period of time immediately preceding the end times but must also describe the reality of life as experienced by God's people from the first coming of Christ to the present day, no matter what day that is. Whether that is late first century Rome, or 15th century Constantinople, or 17th century England, or 21st century China, or 30th century Mars, revelation is equally relevant to all believers in every time and place. This notion of both historical and contemporary relevance is reinforced in the next verse, which says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. For the time is near, not merely in what was certainly for the people of John's time, and may still be for us the distant future, We also see in this verse the importance of studying the written Word of God in understanding the revelation of God. There is simply no proper understanding of the ways of God without the proper understanding of His Word. And for the Christians of John's time, to the seven churches he was writing to, these words of blessing were crucial to giving them hope, comfort, and strength to endure the dreadful persecution by the Roman government because they worshipped Christ alone, and refused to participate in the cult of Caesar, who, under the emperor Domitian, was to be considered this semi-divine figure or any of the other pagan gods found in temples throughout the empire. And also, as with Paul's letters to the first century churches in Corinth or Rome, the Book of Revelation also speaks to God's people throughout history, especially when they must face all manner of horrible trials, opposition, falsehood, and persecution due to their faith. Ask yourself, do Christians face such things today? Then this is a book for us today. So Revelation is not just a book to be dusted off occasionally whenever one is in a fanciful mood to speculate about the future. But it is a book to be studied and obeyed like all the other books of scripture so that we may be blessed in the here and now. And who or what is the basis of that blessing? Let's look at the next several verses to see what they say about that. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of this world, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. The blessings come from our Lord Jesus Christ, of course, and his angels. Note that Christ is not only a faithful witness and firstborn of the dead, but ruler of the kings on earth. This last bit is the first of multiple reminders that will come throughout the book of Revelation that no matter how seemingly powerful or dreadful any human or even demonic prince may be in this world, Christ is ultimately king. And there is no power under him that he cannot master. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him, which means that through his providence, he can remove and appoint any lesser power he wishes. Now, this doesn't mean that every president or prime minister, or general secretary or whatever lives an obedient Christian life, or even remotely pleases the Lord. In fact, many, if not most of these rulers, are probably horribly wicked. But it does mean that Christ the King overrules the sinful acts of wicked leaders and even uses sometimes their sin and stupidity as a part of his plan for history. We may not understand how and why, but we humbly submit and acknowledge the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. This also means that the diverse wicked powers of this world, which will be described in rich symbolic figures throughout Revelation, are not to be feared by those whose master is Christ the Lord, who rules by virtue of his resurrection from the dead. For if the ultimate weapon by which earthly rulers enforce their will is by dealing death, then Christ, who is the firstborn of the dead, meaning that he has conquered death through resurrection, then that weapon has no power over those who have eternal life. Finally, it means that as Christ reigns, he will ultimately win and all of his saving purposes will result in victory until he puts all of his enemies under his feet. Later in Revelation 17, even when the temporal rule of the world tries to war against Christ, it is written, they will make war on the lamb and the lamb will conquer them for he is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. So he cannot be defeated, which means his people also cannot be defeated. So long as they remain faithful to him for his cause will triumph. And how will we remain faithful to him? In The next few lines it is written that glory and dominion belong to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom. So this means we are united to him and his kingdom by his love for us, proven by his death on the cross. And again, this victory is definitely coming. Behold, it is written, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, even his enemies and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. What this means is that as much as the believer should delight and be heartened even in the face of wicked opposition, knowing that final victory will belong to Christ and his people, it also means that the enemies of Christ will face a reckoning. There will indeed be much wailing by the tribes of earth. The final lines of our text this morning, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who was, who is, and who was, and who is to come, the Almighty, illustrates the end that this victory represents. It echoes Isaiah 44, which says, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and the last. Besides me, there is no God. So since everything comes from God, as Alpha, and nothing will outlast God as Omega. God has the first word and the last word in history. There is more exposition of this theme culminating at the end of this book of Revelation, but suffice to say here that all of creation has no beginning apart from the Creator. And in the end, all creation will serve the purposes of the Creator. For those who through Christ meets the Omega as the fountain of the water of life because they thirst for him, will never thirst again. But for those who do not thirst for him because they are self-satisfied or thirst only for the things of the world, they will perish forever in a lake of fire." In other words, at the beginning of the road is God as the Alpha, and at the end of the road is God as the Omega. Either you will meet him as light and water and life or you'll meet him as fire and torment. May you therefore choose the right way to meet him when Christ says, behold, I am coming soon. All of these things that have been described thus in the introduction to Revelation are but a preview for the rest of the book. And So I hope that you are now looking forward to studying the book of Revelation in the coming weeks for again, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the word of the prophecy and blessed are those who hear and who keeps what is written in it for the time is near. And to further make you thirst, let me conclude with a quick preview summary of what the rest of the book is about. Jesus sits upon his throne and rules over all the events of human history. Satan has been bound and weakened although his final destruction is still yet to come. The people of God in Christ's church will suffer, will suffer all manner of strife, opposition, and persecution, but the church will prevail. The world may appear to be one way to our mortal eyes, but things are not always what they appear to be. And so the visions of revelation are a means by which the true nature of evil may be uncovered in the characters of the harlot, the false prophet, the antichrist, and the beast. These evil characters empowered by Satan are not only part of some distant future right before the final judgment and Christ's return, but they also exist as archetypes throughout history in every time and place where Christians have suffered and will continue to suffer at the hands of the wicked. But in every case, their end is destruction, and their path only leads to death. We would therefore be foolish to abandon Christ to follow the hollow attractions of this world, to turn to false religion, or to try to escape temporal suffering that comes from striving to be holy and obedient to God in a world that is hostile to true Christianity. Remain faithful to Christ even in the face of torture and death. For to die faithful is to live with Christ who has conquered death. For he is the lamb who was slain for all who believe in him and obey his commandments. And he is coming, oh yes. He is coming for you and for me and for all who love him and all who hate him. Whether that will be the greatest day of your eternal life or the worst day of your everlasting death will depend on whether you are faithful to the end, from the Alpha to the Omega. This is the message of revelation, and you need to know what it is all about, for the time is near. Let us pray. Lord God, we love you, and we thank you, and we pray that you will bless us abundantly as we continue to study your word. Use us today and in the days ahead in your service and for your praise and glory until Christ our King returns in the clouds for us all. In his name we pray, amen.